Father, we just praise you for your goodness, the goodness you've inserted into our lives, the way you continue to challenge us and change us and make us into who you want us to be. And Father, as we get dive into your word today, I pray that you speak to us. Pray your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks so much for joining us this morning for our second service. Thanks for watching online as well. Um, during the first service, I dismissed all the kids, and there's a bunch of them here this morning. It was great to see. I hope they all had a great first week of school for you guys. Maybe you're in here, you have kids as well, um, where you get to see them go off, nieces, nephews, so on and so forth. Man, it's good to be back into somewhat of a normal routine. Summer's always so crazy and all over the place, but to be able to be in somewhat of a routine, it's been good to see it. I appreciate you guys making Paragon Church part of your routine during this school year. And speaking of school year, we kicked off our youth group, our Axis Youth Midweek this week, and uh, we had a pool party over at the Proctor's house. And by the way, Micah, thank you so much for filling in for, for Kyle this morning. Kyle's in Texas right now. Um, he is in the uh, process of grieving with his family as a, his uncle who battled cancer for quite a while um, passed away this week. So they had the service yesterday and uh, he was just able to be with his family. So thank you, Micah, for filling in. And also want to thank Micah and Corey for opening up their house to all the kids because we had no idea what to expect. It was a beautiful thing though because we had 35 youth show up for our kickoff for our school year and that is a big deal especially looking at the crowd that's in here right now but uh, <laughs> um, but there's a time not too too long ago that we were averaging six to eight and so to be at 35 and know that uh, Bruce your leadership is a big part of that so thank you for that as well as we have so many youth that are inviting their friends to be a part of what we're doing and just learning about Jesus and that's just a such a big thing at this point in time. I mean, if you really think about it, I don't think I have to even point it out, but the youth are under attack right now. Just all the different ideologies that are being trying to shove down their throat, the one thing they need more than anything is Jesus, and they get him here, and I'm excited about that, and I'm thankful for our, our youth inviting their friends to that, because as we'll see, life change is going to come. Life change is going to be a part of that, and speaking of even just life change, you know, I think about days like the day that you meet Jesus and how that changes everything. And my guess is, is that you have different things that have happened, different days that have happened in your life that created life change. The day you were born obviously created some life change. But bigger and better than all of even those things are things like the day maybe you met your spouse or the day that you got married or the day your children were born or the day that maybe your first day of school, maybe when you met that lifelong friend. I don't know what it was for you. There's days that change our life that are days that we just get the best news ever and there's days that change our life that really we get the worst news ever and I say that because this week on Friday August 19th August 19th is two of those days for me really there's two big events that happen on August 19th that that really shaped who I am uh, first one is if my parents had stayed together, they'd be celebrating their 48th wedding anniversary. And that's a big deal to me because I wouldn't be around had they not gotten together the first time around. So um, thinking about that, that, that was a positive thing for me that obviously shaped why I'm here today, literally. August 19th also is a big day because 29 years ago, my stepdad was killed in a tractor accident right before I was supposed to start college. And that too shaped who I am today. That too guided and directed 
so many different things and I'm not going to get into all the details about it all but, but really when it comes right down to it one thing that really saw me or helped me see was I saw death the face of death for the first time now I experienced death before I had animals die I had pets die I even had a friend of a friend who died in a car accident uh, when I was in high school but this was different August 19th was different. It was, it was one of those ones that it, it truly did shape me. It was close to me. And what it really did is it helped me see eternity for what it is. It, it made eternity that much more real. See, I'd known about heaven and hell for a long time. I'd been a Christian for five, six years at that point. And uh, it changed, though, what salvation really is. It changed the fact that I came to the realization that anybody at any time could be gone right now. It, it changed my view on that. It brought actually a whole new light to evangelism to me. See, when I was in high school, I went through a program called Evangelism Explosion. And it was, it was a pretty simple program. It was about leading people to Jesus. But there, there wasn't an um, urgency to it until this event happened in my life. But even with, even with evangelism explosion, you ask the right questions that, that leads to the presentation, that leads to some follow-up, and you're able to do it. But when there's an urgency behind it, when you truly see there's a soul on the line, it changes the way it is. Because in evangelism explosion, it, it simply walks through the gospel with you. Uh, I used to teach it to the kids. It has two questions and five points. Anybody who's been in my youth group probably ha had heard it at some point in time. But the, the two questions lead to the five points. And the five points are simply, even you can do it on your hand. Starts off with kind of that free ride or heaven is a free gift. However, man is dead. Kind of have that gun look to it. Man is dead because they're a sinner. God, who is merciful, is also just. And he will condemn our sin. But the great thing is Jesus, the bride, your wedding finger, the bride, or uh, the groom, that we are the bride of Christ. When you remember that, you remember he came for us so that we could have a relationship with God and all you have to do is have faith the size of a mustard seed. That was simply the presentation. But before you even got to that presentation, you asked two questions. And the first question went something like this. If you were to die today and, and you thought you might spend eternity with God is that something that's going to happen or is that something you're still working on if you were to die today would you spend eternity with God or is that something you're still working on generally people would be like well that's something I'm still working on okay well with your answer to that question let me ask you a second question if God were to ask you why should I let you in my heaven what would you say you know what the most common answer was I'm a pretty good person. I, I've done some good things in my life. Uh, my good outweighs my bad. I have never, and then there's always a blank that they fill in that they haven't ever done. And the thing that, that really got me going is, is that when somebody would say that, we would have a follow-up statement. And that follow-up statement was something like this. When you answer the first question, I thought I had some good news for you. But when you answer that second question, I know that I have the greatest news that you've ever heard. And then you go into the fact that heaven is a free gift. Man is a sinner. God is merciful, but God is also just. The bride, uh, uh, our Christ himself, came, lived, died that perfect death 
for us so that we could have a relationship with him and all we have to have is faith as small as mustard seed. That's the way it would go. And in that, we got to think about the question, why do so many people think that as long as we're good enough, that's what's going to get us to heaven? Why is it that somehow that we think good enough is going to be good enough? And then we have to ask this question, who determines what's good enough? I mean, who draws the line that, yep, you make it, nope, you don't? Who's the one? Generally, it's us, isn't it? And we base what's good enough on who we hang out with or who we want to compare ourselves to. Well, I'm not Hitler, so therefore I must be good enough. Those are the kind of thoughts that go through our minds, but the truth of the matter is there is no good enough. There is no good enough. And that's not a new thought for people to think, well, as long as I do this, then I'll get into heaven. As long as I'm good enough, that's not a new thought. It's a, it's a thought that's been through ages and ages. As a matter of fact, as we dive into today, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see this good enough thinking get confronted by Jesus. See, there's been lots of answers throughout all time that men have come up with, that women have come up with, that children have come up with, and they're based on our feelings. They're based on our culture. They're based on our situations. And that's what determines what is good enough. But Jesus gives us the right answer. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I would love for you to open to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 17 through 20 today. And as you're opening up there, I want to remind you that we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount really since the beginning of the summer. We called uh, the, the first series something different. We called it Flipped because we went through the Beatitudes. But they're really the, the precursor for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, hey, your character traits are ones that should be pursuing God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then when you're doing that, those the people are going to be the ones who realize that they're spiritually bankrupt. They're going to mourn over their sin. They're going to turn their lives over to the Lord. They're going to give the reins over to Him. And they're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because again, they realize there's no good enough. They can't do it on their own. There's no one good thing that they can do to make it into heaven. Those character traits will show themselves in our lives. And as they show themselves in our lives, we'll be salt in a decaying world and we'll be light in a dark world. That is where we find ourselves at today. These, these traits will influence the world for good. Us living right, uh, rightly, well, because Jesus has influenced us. Us living the good life. This living the good life sermon series title. What does that mean? What does it mean to live the good life? Probably should have went over that last week since we started the series last week, but we'll cover it this week instead. What does it mean to live the good life? Does it mean that we follow all the rules? Is that the idea that if we follow all the rules and we'll be living the good life? And the reason why I have to ask that is because, again, I said it last week, I'll say it again this week. Remember the audience. We were not the primary audience. We just get to be the beneficiary of Matthew recording it and it being preserved for 2,000 years. The primary audience was a first century crowd who had gathered behind the disciples and Jesus is saying here is how you live the good life here is how you are blessed here is how it all plays itself out but does that mean follow the rules 
Because that first century crowd, they were bombarded with rules. You have to think the Pharisees, who were the, the religious people today, the scribes, who were the ones who did all the scholarly type of stuff, they knew all the rules. As a matter of fact, they added to the rules. They made their own rules in it all. There's something like 617 rules by the time it was all said and done. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they did a pretty good job of doing it. Of course, when we go back to our how good is good enough, how good is good enough? They thought it was good enough. They thought as long as we follow all the rules, but who's following 617 different rules? And so the people knew about that, but they were probably struggling with it because they didn't even know 617 of the rules. They only knew probably a handful. So what is it? And here we have Jesus saying, this is how you live the blessed life. This is what you do. But you know what he has yet to mention in all of this kingdom living that he's been talking about? Rules. What he has done is he's had a little clash with our friends, the Pharisees. And he's had a little clash with the friends of the scribes. And they're doing pretty well in the good enough. So is Jesus saying that there's something different than what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing? I mean, they were the great protectors. They were the great defenders. They were the great keepers of the law. So with the, question, or with the clash, questions start to come up. And as these questions start to come up, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus opposed to the law? Because the law is what the Pharisees followed. And he seems to be opposed to them. So is he opposed to the law? Is he opposed to Moses? Is he opposed to the traditions of Israel and the teachings of the Old Testament? Is he opposed? Second, is he going to openly oppose them in himself? Because it's different to oppose the law but then actually live out that opposition. Because all throughout Matthew chapter 5, he's talked about the kingdom of heaven, but not yet has he talked about the law of the kingdom of heaven. He hasn't talked about the rule of the kingdom of heaven and he hasn't talked about the behavior of the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean? Did Jesus come to throw out the Old Testament and all the things the prophet said? That's a real question that's starting to go around. And some people are saying yes. Because sometimes we like to spread rumors even if they're not true to try and defame a person. You think the Pharisees and scribes were doing that because of this clash? We still hear it today, though, don't we? I mean, we hear people in church leadership say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. They say, well, the God of the Old Testament, is this, he's this mean, grumpy old God that was always just punishing Israel for everything they did. But the God of the New Testament, after Jesus came, is a God of grace and love and mercy. And he's not mean and judgmental anymore. Can I just tell you, when you hear that, that's garbage, okay? Because... Jesus and God are the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is perfect in his grace and his mercy and his justice, always has been and always will be. He didn't change. He does not change. The Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way, they're not two different books. They're all a part of the same story. They're all a part of his story. The story of Jesus. And I say that because that's what Jesus says in this next part of his sermon. Again, I had you open to Matthew chapter 15, or chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. We're coming off those Beatitudes. And he's talking about how those tr character traits will influence the world. He's going to switch to the how. How does it influence the world? And it's going to play itself out for really for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. These next four verses we talk about today are really going to be foundational for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But especially for us over the next six weeks. Because after today, we're going to hear Jesus say, you've heard it said, but I tell you. 
And what he's saying is the Old Testament said this, but I'm going to go further with it. But why that is important to even think about that is because what he says next. So let's read it in verse 17 if you'd follow along with me as it says this. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, better known as the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to just tell you this right here, right now. And if you decide to get up and walk out, or if you're watching online and turn it off, I understand. But this passage is not an easy one to break down. And this passage is probably much more theological, like a kind of a study class, than it is applicable. Now I'm going to do my best to bring it around to applicable, but there's going to be a lot of information here. And if you know me, I'm not just about information, I'm about transformation. So I'd like to see this information do something. Again, it's going to set it all up. I tell you that for this reason. I'm not going to skip it. Because Jesus didn't skip it. Now, some people might say, well, you know, I, I just need you to speak into my daily life and to the daily struggles that I have and the struggle with my marriage and the struggle with my kids and the struggle with my finances. That's the kind of sermon I want to hear. Here's the thing that I'm seeing here, that all the people that were sitting around with Jesus had those same struggles that we do. Yet Jesus found it important, important enough to say, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Why is it important? Because the law truly has a place in the Christian's life. And that is what we're going to talk about today. It's not because Jesus wanted to be irrelevant and boring, and I hope today is not irrelevant, and I really hope it's not boring. I really watched people's eyes glaze over in the first service, and I'm like, dear God, just give me the strength to get through, because I don't want to glaze over too. You know, that'd, that'd be a bad thing. But he chose to speak on this subject because he knew how important it is for our lives to have the proper foundation and the proper role of the law in our lives and have scripture in the Christian life speak to how we live. Because as we will see over the next six weeks, it's going to speak to how we live. As a matter of fact, there's a guy by the name of John Newton. You might know him through a song he wrote called Amazing Grace. Ever heard of that one before? Yeah, he wrote that great hymn, but he also wrote some other things that are pretty important. And he was recorded writing a letter to a friend that he said this, the ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the foundation of the majority of our religious mistakes. We have to know why this is important. And I think that's why Jesus chose to speak, not because of John Newton, obviously, but that's why Jesus chose to speak the law to his people. He wanted to make sure that they realized the relevancy of the law in the Christian living. And so this passage, as he speaks, you're going to see that he is teaching mm, kind of a little bit against the prevailing views of the Pharisees. That clash is going to continue to happen. The clash we've already seen. And the thing is, is as they are sitting there probably huffing and puffing and saying, you know, this is who we are. We are the keepers of the law. He actually undercuts their authority of the law. And he calls out their hypocrisy 
and their man-made traditions. They're all sitting around going, you know, here's who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is doing. He's done away with the law. He's brought in this relationship with God, and it's all about grace, and it's all about love, but he doesn't care about obedience anymore. These are the things that are being said. They're not true, but they're the things that are being said, and people are believing them. The problem is, we have people still today that believe that. They're saying, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, you know, if you mention the word obedience or duty in a Christian church, you know what word gets tagged to you pretty quickly? Legalism. Legalism. Because it's about following the rules. But that, that's not what Jesus is trying to say here. They, the people say, you know, we don't have anything to do with obedience around here. We're about grace. I mean, there's an entire theology that's called grace-based theology that has thrown away most of the things that the Old Testament has. And too often, too often we're taught that, that righteousness and living for Christ and the fighting for the faith and obedience to, to Christianity and, and the laws that are in place goes contradictory to grace. But I'm going to tell you today, and Jesus is going to tell you today, they actually go hand in hand. They actually connect together. Why do we teach it that way, though? And the reality is, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but our culture tends to resist authority. Our culture questions the law, questions obedience, and even it happens in the Christian church. It happens in the church. We really believe that love is all you need. We really believe the Old Testament needs to be unhitched from what's going on in the New Testament church. And people think it's love, not law, grace, not obedience. The great thing is, is Jesus, in this passage we look at today, is going to correct those kind of thinkings. So I'm going to ask you to have an open mind and hopefully enough caffeine in your system to bear with me as we go through a lot of information today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are again, and thank you for the way you continue to speak and direct us and guide us. I pray that through this, you speak to us, and you challenge us, and you change us, and you make us into more of who you want us to be. Pray in your name. Amen. One of the great things I love about Scripture is it's very honest. It tells you things that you wouldn't put in your biography. But one of the things it says oftentimes is that Jesus knows what the crowd was thinking. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking. And he answers them before they can even get out of their mouth. That's kind of a cool statement to me. So as he's sitting there with this crowd, he knew what they were thinking. He knew that they were thinking, what is he going to do with this clash between the Pharisees? What about the rules? So what's he lay out? He lays out immediately the rules of the kingdom, the standard of the kingdom, and really the kingdom's relationship to the Old Testament. And in it, what he's doing, he's saying, here is where the law fits into the Christian's life. And what he says first is something we need to understand. The law is still in place. The law is still in place. When he says these words in verse 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. There's two things he's telling us in that verse. Two things. And the first one is, he didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus is saying, I'm not anti-Old Testament. I am not anti-Old Testament scripture. I'm not anti-moral law. I'm not anti-obedience. I am not saying that obedience to God's moral law doesn't matter anymore. He's not saying that. Jesus says the law actually continues to be very valid. Not just valid, but it continues to reveal God. It continues to show us His character. It continues to show us His will for us. It also continues to show us who we are in relationship to God because we can't meet up to that good enough 
standard. It shows the nature of salvation because it teaches us that we cannot be saved by the law. The law continues to do those things as well as many other things. It continues to be the perfect rule of righteousness for Christian living. See, once we understand that we cannot save ourselves, once we understand that salvation is by grace through faith, then you can come to understand that only by the grace of God and the residency of the Holy Spirit in our lives will we begin to obey that law because the law has been written on our hearts because God created you to keep it in the first place. The only, it's only through the grace of God that we can begin to be who God intended us to be. Because without God, we can't do it. So Jesus makes it clear that when the law is rightly understood, it is not opposed to the gospel. It works hand in hand with the gospel. The gospel's purpose, you know what it is? It's to conform us to God's image. It's to make us who he wants us to be. Well, if we're going to be conformed to his image, what's God like? What are his characteristics like? What types of things does he do? Well, guess where that's revealed that? In the law. We see it in the law, and so when the gospel takes hold of our lives, we begin to actually delight in the law. We actually begin to say, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, how I love your law, O Lord. Now, I mentioned this in the first service. Has anybody ever been pulled over? And the red and blue lights are flashing in your rearview mirror, and you're like, thank you, God, for the law. No, we don't. But in the Christian life, we're saying this is what keeps us safe. A lot of people are like, why did God give so many rules? Why did he give the Ten Commandments? Why did he do these things? You know, he didn't give the Ten Commandments first. Just giving you a little bonus. I didn't tell this to the first service. You know why he didn't give us the Ten Commandments first or give the Israelites the Ten Commandments first? Because he was building a relationship. The Ten Commandments came in well after they were into their 40 years in the desert. He was saying, these are some guidelines to keep you safe, to keep you, my children, from harm and harming yourself. That is what we see taking place here that we say, I love the law because if it were a pair of train tracks, that is what keeps us from getting derailed. It's the, our train of life is the law that keeps us from getting derailed. Second thing he says, not just I came not to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to wipe it away and start a clean slate. I came to fulfill it. We need to understand that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. We said that all along if you were with us a couple of years back and we really took like three years to go through the entire Bible. We called it the Gospel Project. And in it, we went through the Old Testament and said everything points to the Gospel. Everything points to Jesus. The Gospels themselves are about Jesus. New Testament points back. All of it is about Him. We need to understand that He came to fulfill See, the relationship to the law is one of fulfillment. If you've ever studied the book of Matthew, you'll see he likes the word fulfillment. It's kind of one of his themes. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned five times before we get to this scripture and then throughout the rest of the book, you're going to see the word fulfillment. He's going to mention it because he says this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to fulfill the law. But the question is, is how? What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law? Well, it means several things. And I just marked a couple of them down here. But first thing is this. He has fulfilled the law in his purpose and in his person. In his purpose and his person. The prophet spoke to him and spoke about him and he fulfilled what they predicted about him. 
The ceremonial law spoke about him in types and shadows, but he set forth the atonement. And, and in that atoning work, he fulfilled what they said. The Lord has fulfilled the law in his person. And I say that this way. He fulfilled it in his doctrine, and he fulfilled it in his teaching. This kind of came to me this week, but in, in the book of John, it says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What was the word to the people of that audience? It was the Old Testament. It was the law and the prophets. The word took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. It pointed all to him. The Pharisees, they misunderstood the law for far too long. So what's Jesus doing in his teaching? He shows what the law truly means and he corrects their misunderstanding. Nobody likes to have their misunderstandings corrected, so we see things progress that we'll talk about more. But Jesus also fulfilled the law in his life. Do you realize that he perfectly obeyed the law? He showed us the real meaning of the law in his obedience. Every bit of it. He obeys the law perfectly, and as a covenant of works, his active obedience on our behalf ends up fulfilling the law and becomes our source for salvation. We are saved because he was a perfect sacrifice. He was a perfect sacrifice because he was without blemish. He was without blemish because he perfectly obeyed the law. And not only perfectly obeyed the law, he died the death. And he fulfills the law in his death. See, the death of Christ, we see the reality of law's demand for holiness. That perfection, that good enough, good enough is perfection. In the death of Christ, we see what we deserved. But he took on himself. We see it. So when we see him cry from the cross, those final words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words we should be crying out. But he took the punishment for us. He fulfilled the law in his death. He took on him what should have been for us so that we could have his righteousness before God. As a matter of fact, that's the next thing. The Lord Jesus fulfills the law in us by his grace. By the working of the Holy Spirit, he writes again God's law on our hearts so that we might delight, might find joy in the law of the Lord. All those ways Jesus fulfills the law and he teaches that in verse 17 that the Old, Tema, uh, Old Testament commands as well as the prophecies and promises they all find their fulfillment in the kingdom. Now I told you I was struggling with this message because it's boring in a teaching sort of way. But I hope what I just told you is not boring. Because even though it's just, oh, he fulfilled the law, he did this, he did it for you and I so that we could have a relationship with God. There's nothing boring about that. See, Jesus brings the Old Testament to reality. He fulfills it, and he set aside every temporary measure, like sacrifice. You know, we don't have to, nobody brought their chickens in here today, right? I mean, there was some blood on the floor right down here, and I'm not sure why, but it wasn't from us. Because we didn't have to do any sacrifice today. That was Old Testament things. That was temporary measures that were put in place. But you know what? He says that I came and I fulfilled it. But at the same time, we can't set aside all of the things without Christ's fulfillment. 
And that's why he says next, hey, there's not going to be another letter. There's not going to be another dash. None of those things are going to go away until the ultimate fulfillment happens. And that brings us to verse 19. Not only do we see that the law is still in place, but this is what we need to understand. The law still needs to be practiced and taught. I don't think I need to go into much detail because Christ pretty much lays it out in the two verses as we look at 19 and 20. He says this, Therefore, whoever breaks one of these, the least of these commands, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That word breaks is also translated annulled or relaxes. Somebody who cuts corners, who says, Ah, you don't have to really worry about that. You're in trouble. And don't teach somebody else to do the same thing. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who doesn't cut corners? Who doesn't relax? The one who is really fulfilling the role of being that kingdom citizen that the Beatitudes talked about and that Matthew 5, 13 through 16 being the salt and the light talk about. The one who does that and teaches others to do, well, they're going to be recognized as the great ones in the kingdom. And then he says what's recorded in verse 20 next. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You know what that tells me? The law requires perfection. The law requires perfection. Think about this. The Pharisees were theological conservatives. We'll just call them that. They believed God. They believed in God. They believed his word. They wanted to live their lives. They demonstrated devoutness to God. These are all things that we see. So they were careful about their behavior. They even went to extremes to make sure that they were not disobeying God's law. To the people of the day, there was nobody that was more righteous than the Pharisees. But what's Jesus say? What did that verse say? For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, those last words on there, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are powerful words. Everybody that was sitting there listening to Jesus all went, oh great, we're out. We're not getting, how, how are we going to, to do this? Basically, what Jesus said is, is that there's nobody good enough to get into the heaven. How good is good enough? Good enough is perfect. 100%, which means better than you. Better than me. I can't do it. It takes more righteousness than I have. Even the most righteous people that I know are not qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you're thinking about that question, if God were to ask you, why should I let you my heaven, what would you say? And you think your good enough answer is going to get you in? You're going to be sorely disappointed. Like eternally disappointed. So that leaves us in a tough spot. That leaves all the people listening in a tough spot. That means no one who is qualified or no one sitting there is qualified to get into the kingdom of heaven. What do we do? What, where does it leave us? Well, I truly believe it leaves us wanting. And even more so than wanting, it leaves us needing. All of these verses remind us of what we need. I wrote four things down. Hopefully this can be the applicable part. The first thing we need is righteousness. I am not righteous enough to get into the kingdom of heaven on my own. I need someone else's righteousness. I can't have yours. What am I going to do? Well, Paul actually writes to the church at Rome in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. You've probably heard at least one of these along the way. But let me give you context around that one verse you've heard. It says, For no one will be justified in God's eyes. 
No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Attested means they pointed to him. I told you, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. The righteousness of God has been given to us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know what that tells me? We put our faith and trust in Jesus. We hand over the reins as it talks about in the Beatitudes and God's eyes will see us as righteous because he's seeing through the filter of Jesus. He's seeing through the blood of Jesus that we have met the requirements of the law. The law has not been abolished. It has been fulfilled by Christ and passed on to those who put their faith and trust in him. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on in the book of Romans to say this in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be, there's that word again, fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but walk according to the spirit we need righteousness Jesus through his death on the cross gave us his righteousness second thing we need is this we need the Old Testament we need the Old Testament I know pastors some of which that I have looked up to that I have read that I have followed that say we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament I could not disagree more. Why do I say that? Well, because Paul writes to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says these words. All Scripture. Now, when I see the word all, you know what that includes? All. So that would be all. Even better, there wasn't a New Testament at the time. So when Paul's actually saying this, He's reaching out even further and going, hey, that Old Testament, that's what I'm really focusing on here. Now, all the rest of it comes together because it's still included in the all. But when he's talking to Timothy, it says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and then what? Training up in righteousness so that man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul's saying, hey, Old Testament is still God's guide for us. Old Testament is still a revelation of his righteous character. So we need the Old Testament. We also, I'm going to say something here that's going to make me sound like one of those legalists. I apologize, but this is what it says. We need to do right. We need to do right. And as we look at it, doing the right thing, it's good for us. And it's also good for others. Doing the right thing is what we are made for. We are made to give glory to God. Remember last week, at the very end of, of our passage on the salt and light? It says, do good works so that men will see and they'll do what? They'll give glory to God. That's what we are created for. That is what we are saved for. More than us being saved from hell, we are saved for a purpose. Doing the right thing shows our love for Jesus as well. When you say, I love you to your spouse, but you don't do the right thing, 
When you say, I love you to your kids, but you don't do your right thing. When you say, I love you to your parents, but you don't do your right thing. What are you actually communicating? Are you communicating love? When we are talking to Jesus, we show our love to him. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Um, Bruce mentioned it, I believe, in the first service where he was talking about serving. I don't remember if you said it during the second service or not. And we didn't even coordinate on that. This is what it says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, which I assume is everyone here, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and do what? Obey His commandments. I know that's just terrible words to hear, isn't it? For this is what love for God is, to keep His commands, and His commands are not a burden. They're not a burden. We delight in His commands because we are showing Him love. Now, it's a whole another sermon in itself, but I think you get it. So first, what do we need? We need righteousness. Second, we, we need the Old Testament. Third, we need to do right. But fourth, we also need to be genuine. I see that loud and clear from what Jesus is talking about here. He says, hey, your righteousness has to be greater than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about good behavior. But what does Jesus criticize them for in Matthew chapter 23 when he really starts pushing buttons? He says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. He uses this in Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You know what a hypocrite is? It's a word for an actor. Somebody who's playing the part to wear a mask. Totally different context than it is today. To be fake. He says, don't be fake. Be genuine. So the question is, are you just play acting or are you truly sincere? And what you do. Is your righteousness just a performance for the crowd? Do you come on Sundays to be seen? Or are you actually living for Christ? Is it external performance or internal reality? What is it? Are you just trying to earn something good? Are you just trying to be good to earn something? Or does your righteousness literally come from Jesus? You realize how broken you are, but because of what he's done for you, you respond in love to shine the light into a dark world, to pour salt onto a decaying world. That's the questions that he's asking us. Are we genuine? Are we doing what is right? Are we hitching ourselves to the Old Testament? Are we knowing that we needed righteousness. See, as we see moving forward, Jesus is going to use this to open the door to six specific you have heard but I tell you statements. Those things are going to be on murder and he's going to tell something a little bit different. Those things are going to be on lust and he's going to tell something a little bit different. Those things are going to be on divorce and he's going to tell us something just a little bit different. Six different things. Six things that are very... Mm, don't want to hear it. So I'm just telling you now, the next six weeks, if you want to take off, now's the time to do it if you don't want to have any sort of challenge come into your life. Because I've already looked them over and I'm like, I don't even want to talk about them. But the reality is, I could have skipped today. I didn't. Not going to skip the next six weeks either. There is a truth that we have here. If you know and follow Jesus, he saved you for a greater purpose than just keep you out of hell. He saved you to live for him. And what living for him looks like, living that good life, is what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to tell us. If you don't know Jesus, please know this. Your good is not good enough. 
You need Jesus and you need his righteousness. The great thing, like I told you up front from EE, it's a free gift. All you have to do is accept it. Just like any gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. You accept it and then you apply it and let God continue to work on you. I told you this is a challenging passage for me. It was one that was difficult to to speak into and not make it boring. I hope nobody fell asleep during all of this because that's a sin and you're going to need some more righteousness things going on in your life. But the truth of the matter is, how can you apply this? How can you take it moving forward? How can you see that the law still needs to be applied and it's something I need to live for, not because I have to, but because I want to, because of my love for Christ? How can that work itself into my daily life as we walk out of here and continue on? That's something I need you to think about as we pray. Father, thank you again for your word and the opportunity to be able to dive into it. And I know it wasn't the most exciting message that we've ever had, but God, I do know that you work in your word and that all scripture is inspired and good for teaching. And I pray, God, today as you have taught us the need for the law and our desire to follow that law because we love you, I pray we see it for what it is. I pray it speaks to us. I pray it begins to change us. And if there's somebody in here that does not know you, I pray they didn't hear, here's the rules that you have to follow if you're going to go to church. I pray they heard Jesus came and lived and died so that we could have a relationship. And in response, we get to follow those rules because you want to keep us safe and you want to glorify yourselves in our lives. I pray that's what they heard. God, as you get the glory this morning, I pray that even as we sing this last song, that your praise comes from our lips, from our hearts, and you hear it for exactly what it is, our love for you. God, may our lives say the same thing. We pray it in your name. Amen.